Mindfulness Mode 73. I find that mindfulness really is a shortcut. Reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness on Mindfulness Mode with me, your host, Bruce Langford. On Mindfulness Mode, we talk about how people from all walks of life have discovered mindfulness and how it's impacted their lives to help them become more calm, focused, and happy. Thanks so much for joining us here in Mindfulness Mode. To thank you for listening, I'll send you a free copy of my book. I teamed up with author Brian Tracy, along with some other entrepreneurs, to create the best-selling book called Cracking the Success Code. You'll learn more about my story and how I became an anti-bullying advocate, which later led to mindfulness and my mindfulness coaching. Get the book free at mindfulnessmode.com slash cracking. Enter your name and email and you'll have your book downloaded in no time. Okay, Mindful Tribe, let's get started. I'm totally thrilled to have Alexander Hine on the line today. Hey, Alex, are you in mindfulness mode? I am, Bruce. Excited to be here. Great. Alexander Hine is an expert in the field of weight loss, and he believes the secret to losing weight and keeping it off is found in daily habits. Alex is so adamant about helping people lose weight that he authored a book called Master the Day, Eat move and live better with the power of tiny habits. Alex is sold on meditation and has actually lived in China seeking out the guidance of sages and gurus. He also meditated and lived without food for five days in the Sahara Desert as part of a mindfulness vision quest. So Alex, can you share with Mindful Tribe, tell us exactly what mindfulness means to you. Absolutely, Bruce. So to me at a high level, it doesn't matter as we were talking before we, we hopped on here, to me, it really is just going after greater levels of consciousness surrounding whatever you're doing behind anything, whether it's losing weight, whether it's becoming more financially successful, whether it's behind having a better marriage. It's all about having greater levels of consciousness. And what I mean by that is understanding often what holds us back, which may be, you know, in the case of weight loss, it may be I always fail and I've always failed for decades. So why bother trying again? It's being conscious of the narrative that's behind the scenes. And for many of us, there is some kind of narrative. The narrative may be that sense of, I always fail, so I'm not even going to try at any goals, not just weight loss, but I'm not even going to try improving my career or my marriage or meditating daily. And so to me, what it means is just being conscious about the story behind the story, what's going on the undercurrent, that very subtle undercurrent that many of us are not aware of because the emotions are very hard to kind of detach from and realize that they are not us. So to me, it's more consciousness surrounding often what holds us back, but also as well as what we're good at, what our strengths are. Right. And so once we know what our strengths are, once once we begin to believe that we've, we understand that what what's holding us back and what our strengths are, what is the next step, Alex? You know, for me, I've noticed, to, just to pull it back to weight loss for a second, that with a lot of people, a certain percentage aren't even aware that there's a narrative going on. So what we often see is we see roadblocks. We see lots of friction, constant failure, things consistently are not working out well. And we wonder, it almost feels like there's some force out there preventing us from basically getting what we want. And oftentimes, I find that when the person believes this, when I believe this, there's often some kind of unconsciousness surrounding whatever the subject is. So there's a subconscious belief behind maybe it's a childhood thing, but more often than not, it's something that's kind of accumulated over the months and the years. So the first step is for a certain percentage of people, be aware of whatever that kind of story is going on. 
And one of the ways I help people do that is by having them literally track for a week what that narrative is saying. So if it's a meditative goal you're going after and maybe you're not meditating every day and you really are adamant about doing that and you just, you just keep running to this roadblock, maybe you write down the thoughts that happen when you don't meditate and maybe you realize, wow, maybe one of your subconscious or unconscious thoughts was that I need to have some kind of guru, some kind of mentor. I need to be living in an ashram in India or I need to be in China. And obviously it's not true, but if you believe it, then that can be sabotaging all your actions and all the steps you should be taking. So the first thing is for a certain percentage of people, it's maybe take time to become aware of the narrative by writing down the thoughts. Anytime you encounter resistance or sabotage when it comes to losing weight, being more successful, meditating daily, improving your marriage, whatever it is. And for the other people, it's just a matter of something that I'm a big fan of. I think it was um, maybe Julia Cameron, the artist way. Is she the one that originally came up with the idea of morning pages? I think she is. So one piece of advice that a friend gave me was to actually write down in the morning all the negative thoughts, the limiting beliefs, all the stuff that just all the junk in your head in the morning. Write them actually down and then write what I view as almost counter affirmations. So if the belief is, here's another day where <laughs> nothing ever works out for me, I'm not going to get that job I applied for, my marriage is still crappy, I'm still 40 pounds overweight, and instead writing out the opposite, the reverse. So you may, you know, maybe the original narrative was nothing ever works out for me. You could change it to I am a pretty lucky person or I'm the luckiest person in the world. Now, if it's dramatically different from where you are, you may not believe it. So I would kind of soften it up a bit. But I find that when a person writes the exact opposite and starts reading them out almost as affirmations, I've seen some pretty cool stuff happen from that. Right. I really love affirmations. And, you know, Bob Proctor talks about affirmations a lot and so do a lot of other people. But what you're saying is really valuable. So you're saying that a lot of a lot of people become defeated. They feel just more and more defeated, more and more defeated. And they have to get to the point where they believe they can pull themselves up and you can help them with with this whole idea of identifying their narrative, becoming aware of it and then working on the affirmation. So I really, really like that. Now, you've mentioned meditation a couple of times. Do you believe that meditation can really help people lose weight? I do, and maybe not in the way that people think. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm sure it can in many ways. That's not specifically my approach. I'm sure that mindfulness can make a person eat less if they're more conscious. Mindfulness can help a person really tune in to whether they're hungry or whether it's some kind of emotional craving. But for me... Going even deeper, 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 the biggest benefit is like we talked about before is understanding the narrative behind the scenes. Because to me, we can, you know, one of my greatest realizations in life was that people don't fail to lose weight or be successful because not necessarily because of the strategies we implement, but it's because of who we are. In other words, the habits of thinking and acting. So there are the strategies we implement and even deeper behind that is who we are basically. And if we fix who we are, the strategies work much better. And I find that mindfulness really is a shortcut to improving who you are, improving the habits of thinking, and also improving the habits of acting. 
I would totally agree. Mindfulness is a shortcut to so many things that we want to achieve in life. And on the way, it can make us feel way happier, way more content, and just relax. And of course, if you're relaxed and you're happy, more chance that you're going to achieve those goals. So I really admire what you're doing to help people, Alex. This is fantastic. I want to ask you then, once you get to this point, you've, you've understood your narrative and you're, you're working with affirmation and maybe you're meditating, how much of what you need to do has to do with the food you put in your mouth and how much has to do with the exercise you need to do? Yeah, great question. Well, the majority is always going to come down to the food. So they actually did this pretty cool study. I think it was the British Journal of Sports Medicine and they had two different groups of people exercising without changing their diet Mm -hmm. and exercising with changing their diet. It was for something like 12 weeks. So Mm -hmm. I think the participants exercised an hour a day five days a week for 12 weeks. So that's about 60 hours over three months. And the people that didn't change what they ate, I think they lost around five pounds. Okay, that's for 60 hours of exercise. But 50% of them only lost two pounds. And that's pretty bad as far as an <laughs> hourly investment goes. Right. And, you know, that's two hours, I mean, two pounds lost. You can lose that running around on a hot summer day playing soccer. Sure. You can lose more than that in water weight. And, It really comes down to food at the end of the day. And food, the reason why it also comes down to food is because we make more food decisions on a daily basis than we do exercise decisions. So food is often – if we have purely three strict meals a day, that's only three decisions we have to make. But often there are snacks in there. Maybe there's cravings. Maybe you throw in coffee and soda and fruit juice. Then there are all these decisions we we can potentially use to bring us in the right direction or in the opposite trajectory. So I find that there's more margin to make it right or make it wrong basically with food because there are more decisions surrounding that. Right. Alex, do you think people make more poor food decisions in the morning or in the evening? You know, from experience, I find that I often see people getting the worst cravings in the afternoon or the evening. In the afternoon, it tends to be around that kind of slump time where people need coffee or maybe right. they're getting a soda or a cookie. Yes. And the late night cravings like dinner isn't quite complete without that little bar, you know, that little dark chocolate or the uh-huh. ice cream. Yes. I find that to be um, afternoon or the evenings. And I'm sure there's, there's research on blood sugar and hormonal changes that are going on there and even emotional reasons. But that's typically when I find it. And I'm sure it's also a matter of willpower as well that gets tired. Yeah, I had one of my interviewees share with me about a study that talked about stresses and that we start each day fresh and we don't have as much stress. And as we have to make decisions throughout the day, it adds slightly, slightly, slightly to our stress level so that later on in the day and in the evening, we just it's just more difficult for us to fight those decisions that we really know we shouldn't eat that ice cream or we know we don't actually want to have that big dessert, but it's more difficult to to counter that. What do you think about that? Have you heard that before? I have. Was this the Israeli parole uh, study? I think it was, yes. Yeah, so I think if I, if I remember it correctly, I think they had – they did a study to see the, the chances of, I guess, a, a prisoner being granted parole. And I think what they found was that earlier in the day, the chances were much greater. And as it got closer to lunchtime, before the the judges had lunch, it went down to almost zero or something. Like the amount of no's just went dramatically up. Right. Personally, I've absolutely found that to be true. And I often find that one of the because of that, 
you know, adhering to this kind of concept, the morning is really the best time for the average person to cultivate certain habits, certain keystone habits like meditation. Right. Meditation. And, and also for me, I have a habit where I always have the same thing for breakfast. I mean, my morning routine is my morning routine and it's all habit. And part of it is what I eat for breakfast and what I choose to eat for breakfast happens to be uh, completely sugar free, you know, as far as any additional sugars and that kind of thing. And so I think that really helps me get the day off to a good start because I believe that one of our biggest problems are the sugars that we ingest in so many foods. What's your comment on sugars? You know, I'm a big believer in not complicating it. I get so many questions about which sugars to eat each day. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Brown, white, raw, Mm -hmm. um, molasses, uh, agave. And ultimately, to me, it's if you're going to eat sugar, eat real sugar. And if you're going to eat real sugar, just try to eat less of it. <laughs> I think that's Ultimately, good advice. Oh, I, I, I'm so I'm such a big fan of simplicity because mm-hmm. there's way too much complexity now in the world, especially in the health space. So I try to stick to the most natural, unrefined form. And if I'm going to eat sugar, I eat sugar. If I'm going to sin, I'm going to sin, mm-hmm. and uh, and I'm just going to enjoy it. But otherwise, I try I just try to reduce it overall. And like you, uh, I'm certain it plays a huge role. Because it's added to everything from pizza sauce now. Yes. I think they've studied um, – when they did studies on processed foods, they found Pizza Hut sauce is like a 7 out of 10 sweetness mm-hmm. ratio <laughs> yeah. because of the sugar added. McDonald's adds sugar to their foods. It's in bread, salt and sugar and bread. I mean yeah. it, it's, it's, it's just a widely used – yeah, even fruit juice has added sugar now. Yeah. So it's quite scary. Well, let's go back to uh, your childhood. Was there were there any indications in your childhood that you were going to uh, become immersed in a life of helping people with their mindset and helping people with weight loss and that kind of thing? You know, as far as weight loss goes, um, there weren't. But as far as mindset, I guess some things now aren't really that surprising to me. When I was 12, I taught myself to meditate um, That was kind of always my childhood calling. So by the time I was 18, I had several hundred books on my bookshelf on meditation, spirituality, shamanism. Um, When I was a kid, you know, all the little boys were praying for girlfriends. I was praying to be apprenticed to some wise men out in the world showing me medicine and meditation and all this stuff. Um, And I guess it's it's kind of come full circle now as in August, I'm going to be uh, enrolling in a four-year program to be a doctor of Chinese medicine. So... That's the next step as well. Oh, so fascinating. Well, let's go back to that time when you were 12 and you were so fascinated with meditation. Tell us a story. Tell us what it was like and tell us a specific about what it was that drew you into meditation. You know, I think one of the things was I didn't have a lot of friends. A lot of my hobbies were were personal, so they were socially isolating Um, I read a lot. I spent a lot of time outside in the woods by myself. And I think when I was in the woods or kind of in those, those twilight hours, like sunrise and sunset, I felt something special that I couldn't describe. Mm. And that led me to kind of investigate because I am naturally, I'm, I'm a scientist. I'm super curious. If I, if there's something I don't know, I have to learn it. It just, I just can't fight that urge. And so I would read all these books to try to figure out what that feeling was. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't know anyone who could describe it from firsthand experience. And I had heard about the priests and the shamans and the mystics of antiquity and of history. And I didn't know if they were real or if they were stories or, you know, what was going on. I didn't know what was fact and what was fiction. So I would gradually 
buy these books. I bought things on energy healing. I bought books on all this stuff that was just so interesting to me, this this huge vein of knowledge that no one was talking about that I knew. Mm-hmm. And as I would just practice meditation more and more, I noticed almost like a little subtle – there was a subtle difference, almost like when I would be in daily life. I think also because I was an introvert, that played a big role mm-hmm. because I didn't often participate. Like in a class, for example, I wouldn't often participate but I would often observe what was going on, almost like I was behind the scenes watching everything pass by. And there's kind of a lot of parallels with meditation there where the, if the thoughts come in your mind, you almost observe them and just let them pass by like clouds. Yes. And I think there were a lot of parallels with my personality and with the fact that I was used to being an introvert. You know, I was used to everyone else talking and me just observing. And I think this kind of that subtle feeling that I felt something that I couldn't describe and I couldn't describe it scientifically or empirically, I think that kind of led me on a little journey to figure out what this was all about. So what was your biggest challenge with meditation as you went through your teenage years? Uh, I I would say sticking with it because (laughs) as a teenager, it was, you know, meditation is great. And then once you hit about 16, you realize, do I want to meditate more or pursue girls? And, right. <laughs> and I, <laughs> that's probably the earthly life is probably the biggest distraction. Right. I think, ironically, we're describing my 16-year-old self. But <laughs> I think throughout history, you know, it's, it's the typical difficulty, the roadblock for monks and mystics too. Right. You know, so many of them didn't pursue the calling until their 40s or 50s or 60s. Um, even very well-known mystics in history. So, well, how about think, pursuing girls who meditate? Yeah, well, there you go. There's a win-win, right? <laughs> and so, did that happen for you? <laughs> it, it didn't. No, it didn't <laughs> until much later. Yeah. But yeah, for me, it was the biggest barrier was not having any like-minded people. Yes. And I think also as an introvert, like I said, I observed human nature a lot, even mm-hmm. before I was into understanding human nature through meditation. And I observed that a lot of the personal friction in life, whether it's at the dinner table during Thanksgiving and the family's talking about politics or relationships or the barriers to being successful and happy, I noticed they're almost always due to the person's character. Mm-hmm. So it was almost always due to some kind of personality flaw or something that we could improve upon, but it was personality related. So to me, Meditation was perfect because that was what I saw, the only path to insight into what are my flaws, what are the things preventing me basically that are causing friction in my life, in my relationship, at work, whether it's ego, whether it's pride, whether it's a personality flaw I haven't worked on, whether it's laziness, whether it's messiness. And without that kind of insight into the self, my own self, how was I supposed to avoid any of these other roadblocks I saw other people facing? And you know how it is for all of us. It's easy to point out anyone else's flaws. Yes. It's so easy to point out my friend's flaws, my parents' flaws, you know, the person honking. It's so easy mm-hmm. to do that. Very difficult to do that for yourself because the emotions are, are invisible and the character is, is – there are layers of it. Well, I want to jump back to something you said about having like-minded people in your life. And you said you didn't have many like-minded people. I know with a lot of projects as an entrepreneur, people will often say, well, you know, you need to get an accountability partner. And I have a project underway right now with John Lee Dumas's Freedom Journal where I have an accountability partner. And every day I check in with, with him and he checks in with me and we kind of keep each other on track. Can that exact same thing help? someone who's working on losing weight and becoming more healthy? Absolutely. I mean, when I first started realizing that we often don't fail to be successful or lose weight or be happy, 
because of all these strategies, but because of who we are. I realized I often tell people I felt like what Einstein must have felt discovering relativity, like he described it as the fabric of the universe, Mm -hmm. because I felt like you could apply this to becoming a more regular meditator or to lose more weight. And I think of this as, you know how spiritual and religious people, they have some kind of daily ritual, whether it's the daily meditation, the prayer, the reading of a spiritual or holy text, or even like in Islam, praying multiple times per day. To me... This is ingraining that kind of spiritual consciousness. Just like we've heard people say financial consciousness, spiritual consciousness is whatever ritual it takes to ingrain that daily level of consciousness surrounding your goal. And absolutely, I find for weight loss, it's the exact same. If the person wants to have a daily health consciousness, just like the religious person praying and studying and reflecting every day, the same works phenomenally well if you're trying to lose weight, which is checking in with somebody journaling, even reading health books every day, listening to health podcasts, whatever it takes to ingrain at the daily level, that kind of master the day philosophy, whatever it takes to ingrain that kind of consciousness. Well, that takes us back to your book as you talk about this master the day and the power of tiny habits. I mean, it's it's called master the day. Eat, move, and live better with the power of tiny habits. Now, when you decided to write that book, tell us what mindfulness tools you use to make it all happen. So the actual process for me was, ironically, the process I talk about in the book, sure. which is how do we go from having an outcome goal? Mm-hmm. Like, let's just say the outcome of meditation is being enlightened. How do we go from having a goal that's like that, that's so far away, to having goals that are process goals, that are focused on today, making today perfect because we know we'll get there, some that nebulous far out place. I know we'll get there if we focus on making today perfect. And this is something I call wedding day syndrome, where we're often so concerned with the wedding in the West, the the one day that's so expensive, rather than focusing on the hopefully decades long marriage. Mm -hmm. And so we often have an event based mindset versus a process based mindset. So to actually ingrain that as a habit, The first thing that I did for my book, just like for a weight loss client or for anybody who wants to cultivate a habit, is figure out what are the vital few habits that I have to do on a daily basis. And for my book, it was very simple, just one habit. I had to write a thousand words a day. And to do that, I do have a weekly check-in group. Um, It's about a 30-minute call with four or five people. That helped a ton. But for me, it was bringing it back to the daily level, the daily habit of writing a thousand words a day. That was the first part. And then I just had to make sure I actually did that. And so would you just write a thousand words and some days would it, you just think, oh my gosh, I just can't get those thousands of words, but you just do it anyway. And sometimes you felt like, did you sometimes feel like it wasn't very good content? You know, I did. Yeah. Part of it was for, I think the first month, the first 30 days, Mm -hmm. it was pretty free flowing. It was pretty easy because I'd been pondering this for about six months. Mm -hmm. And then as I encountered more resistance, I would set a timer for an hour Mm -hmm. And it was just whatever I could get done in that hour. So I time blocked that one hour on my calendar and it was either a thousand words or the hour, which whenever, whichever came first. Right. So you didn't worry about whether it was a thousand words for sure. Right. And then, and that was once I started encountering a bit of writer's block and I find that for goals, it's almost like, well, I can do it another hour and get it done, but then it produces stress because I've got all these other things to get done. So I was gentle on myself and just left that one hour and then... Whatever was junk, that, that's part of that multiple painful editing process. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's interesting you said that you were gentle on yourself. It seems that there's a fine line between 
being gentle with yourself, which it's important not to beat yourself up if you don't achieve what you're hoping to achieve. But there's a fine line between that and between just not getting anything done at all. How do you That's- how do you reach that fine line? <laughs> I I definitely have not mastered this at all, but I'll tell you what has worked for me so far. It really comes back to knowing yourself. Right. And I found that some goals are easier to get done because there's a lot of intrinsic motivation. For me, the book was my idea. I was highly motivated to do it. There was never one day where I encountered resistance to write. Even if the writing itself was hard, I never had a problem sitting down and doing it. So the first thing is, is a big question is, are you working on the right goals? Because if they require a lot of resistance to start, they may not be the right goals. Mm -hmm. They could be too big. Or maybe you need to change it in some way. Just like a person who hates running, I wouldn't recommend to run. Maybe there's yoga or gardening you can do. That's also exercise, but it's less friction. And then combining that with old school discipline. So there are some things that I I need to do every day that take a lot of work and they take a lot more discipline than other things. But my personal goal is to put every habit into one of two boxes, which is requires effort and effortless. And that's kind of coming back to Gay Hendricks, um, your zone of genius. And I, I actually have in a document all the things I do on a day-to-day basis in every aspect of my life, my health, business, spirituality, my relationship, all the habits that move me forward dramatically and are effortless. And I try to do more of those, obviously. Wow, that's really great stuff. That's really great to know how you achieve this. One thing I didn't ask you, tell us how you came to the conclusion that you wanted to work in the field of weight loss. How did you get there? It's always an evolving journey. Three years ago, I was very confused, very lost about my direction. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd been in the gym for for about seven years at the time and I got a lot of the same questions. And when I Googled those same questions, a lot of the advice was very much WebMD, or someone with a PhD or an MD, and that's, those credentials are fantastic and important, but they maybe could have done a better job presenting the message in an easier way for people. And so when it came time to train people, I found that I liked, rather than training people like in the gym, I preferred those kind of life talks where we went into the emotional stuff, the habit stuff, the food stuff. It's much more complex and stimulating. And it was eventually when I realized that this is this is pretty cool and this is the specific way I can help people apply habits in their life because theoretically somebody could have talked about habits for financial success or habits for marriage or habits for anything. But I figured this is what I had the most experience in and right around the time where I was certified as a personal trainer, I just saw the big opportunity to really teach something different. Right. And I'm sure you're changing lots of lives out there. Alex, I've worked in bullying prevention for over a decade, and I've seen how how the practice of mindfulness can make a huge difference in the lives of kids and adults who have been bullied. Do you have a story about a bullying situation where mindfulness may have made a difference or maybe it did? You know, I I mean, (laughs) so I've whether or not we didn't talk about this before, but yeah, I was bullied for about a decade as a kid. I was bullied for most of my life. Oh, Um, really? Yes. And I was always the shortest kid. Mm -hmm. I was the skinniest kid and I always looked the youngest. So Mm. even going into high school, my license – so I didn't go through puberty until I was like 18 or 19 Mm. and I didn't fully grow until about 24. So when I got my license at 17, I – my height said five foot five and I was 114 pounds. And I was <laughs> fully wow. fully grown at that time. Now I'm six foot two or three. And so there was a big time differential there. But for me, when I went into high school, 
Um, there were a lot of people, yeah, there were a lot of people who would bully me or people who would be like, you look like my younger sister, like my 10 year old sister when Mm. I was 17 years old. And I think partly what served me was yes, being an introvert, but also the mindfulness approach, which I'd been loosely practicing for a couple of years at that time. Mm -hmm. And I realized, you know, even if let's say theoretically, even if I was a big kid and I could fight, what was it going to solve for me? Because if I chose to react defensively, that's not really helping myself evolve and kind of have a greater level of consciousness surrounding yeah. this. And if I were going to let – if I let it get to me, then I basically had already um, messed up my own approach because the whole point of – for me, having greater consciousness is there's less friction in life. Life's just easier. Things just go much more smoothly when you understand what's behind things. You don't react when some – you don't push back when somebody pushes. You just yield. And for me, I would kind of just – I mean, at the time, it's been almost a decade now, so I don't remember that much my actual inner feelings, Mm -hmm. but I still do remember yielding and just kind of shrugging and it's like, well, (laughs) what am I going to do about it anyway? And, uh, but it's also tough when, you know, I find that people that get bullied a lot tend to be hypersensitive to criticism, even from friends and family, because if a lot of people that you know are bullying you, then when a friend jokingly bullies you, you can't differentiate what's an attack and what's friendly. Right. And that took me a lot of years to recover from. I could never take a joke. I was overly serious and um and I could and especially I couldn't joke about myself. I couldn't make fun of myself in a serious way. And I think that meditative approach has helped me quite a lot because I know a lot of other kids that were bullied who to this day they are their bullied selves. They are those kids 20 years later or 30, 40, 50 years later and then as parents they impart some of these unconscious things to their kids. And for me, I just basically made one promise, which was I was going to evolve. I was going to get better every year, and I have since then. Oh, that's great insight. Alex, my next questions are part of the multi-mode round. Just short 30-second answers are perfect. Here's the first one. Who's one person who has influenced your mindfulness practice? You know, one of my big mentors, my first Chinese medicine mentor, we'll just call him Jay for now, was one of the biggest mentors of mine only because that was the first time I ever actually had a mentor in person that would work with me daily. Every single day, I worked part-time for him in his Chinese medicine practice. And so four hours a day, I could get that kind of spiritual training I needed. And I found that I made much bigger leaps then than even in my daily practice or the thousand books I'd read before then, because it's very hard to understand this without someone who's, who's really gone through it or has helped people directly, you know, tens of thousands of patients. Mm-hmm. How has mindfulness affected your emotions? For me, it's kind of that idea of less friction. I find that day, the days are just so much smoother. And the most, the days where I've had most regular practice, where I've been the most conscious, have just been easy. That's, that's the, the, the straight truth. They've just been easy. There's no car horn. There's no traffic. There's no emotional fight that can really ruffle it. And it's just this feeling of, kind of that Taoist feeling of life's, life's pretty easy. It's pretty, I'm just, you know, being carried along. I'm doing my work, no roadblocks. It, it's kind of a pleasurable feeling. Right. That is just floating down the river. Yeah. It's just relaxing. Tell us how, <laughs> tell us how breathing is a part of your mindfulness practice, Alex. For me, one of the things I do is as I work, because for the last three or four years, I've worked 12 hour days because I've had multiple jobs. And mm-hmm. the the hardest thing for me was the stress, which is, Despite meditating in the morning daily, despite working out, despite eating right, it's been very hard to kind of be conscious of my stress level 
And for me, the biggest trigger was the breath. And so I developed – basically, I used the Pomodoro technique. Are you, are you familiar with that, Bruce? Yes, I am. Yes. Yeah. So I used the Pomodoro technique, which is regular breaks every 25 minutes, I think. And I used that five minutes as a quick meditative break. And I basically do a quick assessment to see at what place in my chest or my stomach my breath is. And that's kind of become the trigger for how stressed I am. Mm. Now, I'm looking forward to uh, lots of our listeners uh, reading Master of the Day. But if you were to recommend another book on mindfulness, what would it be? A, if you're interested in a, a really unique narrative, which is a true story, it's called Fourth Uncle in the Mountain, The Remarkable Legacy of a Buddhist Itinerant Doctor in Vietnam. Um, the author is Marjorie Pivar, P-I-V-A-R, and uh, Quang Van Yuen, which is Q-U-A-N-G-V-A-N-N-G-U-Y-E-N. Um, that's on Amazon, and it's a cool story of a traditional Chinese medicine, basically upbringing, apprenticeship uh, in Vietnam during the Vietnam War. And a look at how both a mystic and a doctor would have been trained. And it's just a really cool, inspiring story that'll, that'll really motivate you to meditate today. What advice would you give to a person, Alex, who is new to the idea of mindfulness and they'd like to start using it in their life? I would say much like any person who acquires great skill or great accolades, whatever it is, it all comes back to some kind of daily skill. And the daily skill is obviously the physical practice of meditation. And the hard part is, is going to be the physical practice of meditation. Mm -hmm. So I would focus on whatever it takes for you to come up with a few key habits to meditate daily, whether it's a time of the day with some kind of ritual, whether it's maybe it's not even seated meditation, maybe it's walking meditation, maybe it's eating meditation, starting with food. Maybe food is a personal weakness of yours. Maybe start with meditation there. Maybe it's in the gym. Start with meditation there, feeling every fiber of your body as you lift the weight or as you run or whatever it is you're doing. And so I would say to think carefully about what are the few vital habits you can do on a daily basis that will lead you to the more conscious, the more present life. Well, that's great. That's very, very good advice. Alex, it's been absolutely fantastic talking with you today about habits and how they can really make a a positive difference in your life and how they can help people that are struggling with weight loss. How can we learn more about what you do and how can we connect with you? Yeah, the best way is to reach out to me at modernhealthmonk.com, which is M-O-D-E-R-N healthmonk.com. And as far as my book goes, it's called Master the Day. You can punch it in on Amazon. And I have a two-hour bonus training. One is a sit-down live case study with a student and a friend who lost around 30 pounds. And the other is an hour of bonus training. And if you get the book and send me a receipt, I'll send you all that for free. Wow, that's a great offer. Wow, thanks for offering that, Alex. That's fantastic. Well, great talking with you. And thanks for all the work you're doing to help people around the, around the world. Yeah, thanks so much, Bruce. You're welcome. Bye now. Thank you so much for joining us today on Mindfulness Mode. For insightful blog articles and show notes for every episode, check out mindfulnessmode.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you could help us out by clicking on the iTunes link on our website and leave a rating and review. Till next time, Mindful Tribe, use what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.